number 19 podcast listener and I'm joined today here in the sitting room in Lower Blakemere by Richard and Phil the Farmer. Hello, I have. What have we got on this week? Well, a little bit jet lagged I am, so... Um, a tired pair today, aren't you? Yes, yeah. but we've got to talk about New York very quickly and we've got Farmer Phil talking about beef and his first night of action. <laughs> it's been a while, Phil. <laughs> I was going to say night of love, and I thought, yeah. no, no, I don't think I can spend. do that. Is it, is it my birthday? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's in the cow shed at night, Phil. Oh, great. Richard's off to Northern Ireland, so yeah. we're going to be talking about yeah. that. We've got to talk about Robins, because it's time of the year for Robins, really, isn't it? Yeah. And we've got a competition coming up. Plant of the Weekend Monty's Wormcast. Brilliant. So off we go. So next week we've got reports coming up from New York. But just to give you the briefest overview, we went to see Sky Souter, who's the composting expert at the Staten Island Botanical Gardens and talks to schools about worm kits. We did podcasts from the sky in the Rise Bar in the Ritz-Colton with Brother Love, who is an indie artist (laughs) of some repute. Well, Adam Curry loves him, so that'll do. And with Rob from the New York Minute podcast, who told us all about where to go. So we did go where he said, and to give you a brief idea of where we went, we went to the top of the rock, which was on top of the Rockefeller Centre. Fantastic views, I think they were better than the Empire State. We went to the Federal Bank and saw all the gold. Why were we there? Because of the FSB, Federation of Small Business. We won Small Business Champion of the Year, and so they took us on this wonderful trip. More of that next week. What's coming up this week, Rich? Tell us about your trip to Belfast. Well, I'm not going to be on a podcast next week, am I? So uh, that might be a blessing in disguise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, jump to Belfast, Northern Ireland I'm going to. It's just outside Belfast, a place called Lurgan, to work on school grounds. There's a bit of a blank canvas at the moment. It's a what, what's it like grounds. at the moment? It's just grass, really. It's grass and a few isolated picnic benches and some you know, off-the-shelf toys. And there is a, a willow maze there and bits and pieces, but it really all needs to be drawn in together. And they really want it to be animated and brought to life. So that's what we're going to do. Nice wildflower meadow and some lovely paths bordered either side with some beautiful native hedging plants. Bark chip paths, nice little teaching area in the middle with a picnic table ensconced in some silver birch and a marsh area. It'll probably be a shallow pond in actual fact before we dig a shallow pond plant that out with some with lots and lots of color lots of native species so in actual fact it'll be like a little oasis because the area itself is situated in a built-up urban environment so it'll be like an oasis stuck in the middle of this uh, how are you going to get your spade there uh, i'm not i'm going <laughs> to go to a higher company oh, we post a pallet over there because your part of your person isn't it yeah you know? yeah i did you say i wanted to take my shovel with me because in actual fact, you know, when you've got... I've had that shovel for a long time, many years, and it's half the shovel it was, <laughs> i got to say. <laughs> but it just fits, you know. It's kind of moulding. Phil would know this. You know, hand tools. If you've had a hand tool for many, many years, then you, you can't work with any other like you can with that one. So, so But I can't take it. No, I'll have to, I'll have to adjust to something So logistically-wise, how are you getting there? Yeah, I'm going to fly from Birmingham straight across uh, into Belfast, hire a car, and then straight into, into Lurgan. And, and then are uh, you sourcing the materials locally, or are you...? 
Yeah, yeah, all the stuff. Uh, well, apart from, our, apart from the hedging plants, we've um, sent those over on a pallet. Right. So Alison's hedging plants, and we've bought, uh, well, I bought the butyl liner and whatnot for the pond to make sure that uh, the right thing, that's gone over there, ready, and hopefully it'll all be waiting for me when I get there. And a suitcase with some waterproofs, so I sent that, sent that over already, <laughs> so I don't have to wait around for the, you know, for the conveyor when I get off the airport. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it's your idea, I think. I think it probably was. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Well, that's interesting, and we hope to hear how it goes then. Yeah. Do you think we can get some of the kids on the podcast if we send that little machine we can, over? Yeah, that'd be good. I'll do that. Take it over, and then we'll record some of the kids. That'd All be right. fun. Yeah. Good. We've got lots of open days coming up at Wiggly Wigglers this year. The garden will be open on Sunday, July the 16th, Sunday, July the 23rd, the next Sunday after, which is the 30th, and then the Wednesday... August the 2nd and those days are in aid of the NGS and Hereford Nature Trust. If you'd like to come along there's a £2.50 donation which goes to those charities and they're open from 2 till 5. But before then we've got a series of Wiggly courses but the first one's a bit special. The first one is In the Cow Shed at Night with Farmer Phil. Something to look forward to. Very uh, nice in my cow shed at I night. I know that. Hmm. It's Saturday, March the 18th, and it's from 7.30 till 9.30. And even better than that, it's free. Completely free. And there's nibbles and uh, a bit of wine. So if you'd like to come along, you must book. That's the thing. But Phil, tell us about the evening. Well, really, the idea is just to try and give people a taste of what it's like in the cow shed at night. I know you're going to say that's just like what it's like in the cow shed in the day with the lights on. (laughs) (laughs) That's not actually true. true. The the cattle behave completely differently at night, and particularly when they're calving. From my point of view, you can walk into the shed at night and you go up to all of them and they won't get up and they're much quieter. And if we can actually get people into the cow shed and show them that, and we'll certainly have some newborn calves, we might, if we're lucky, have a calf born during the evening. I can't promise it for obvious reasons, but it would be a good experience if it happened and it all went right. So we've got that to look forward to. How heavy are the cows? They probably vary between 400 and 600 kilos, so average half a tonne plus. So no danger involved? Oh, it's very dangerous. Absolutely <laughs> ludicrously dangerous. Because it'd, it'd be nice to have a bit of an edge, you know, like going on a roller coaster <laughs> ride, that sort of hook, that bit of excitement for people. <clears throat> well, yeah, I can't liken it to a roller coaster <laughs> ride. I really can't. <laughs> as much as he'd like to, it's not. It's just not, not there. <laughs> no, it's not. No, not the whole the same, is it? What's your role on the evening, Rich? Well, I'm looking forward to it. I was just thinking how much warmer it is in there compared to this room today. <laughs> There might be a bit more flatulence in there than this room, but you know, I think perhaps, perhaps we should have got in there today. To we do, we do are very cold, Lister. Yeah. It's normally quite cosy in the Wiggly sitting room, but today... Yeah, it's decidedly oof, chilly. Very chilly. No heating on for a week, best yeah. part of a week, I think. <laughs> a little bit of frostbite just over there, isn't it, Rich? <laughs> there is a, yeah, no, it'd be a good course, I reckon. And natural fact, for people who haven't had much experience with anything bovine-like, it'll be a real treat, I reckon. <laughs> Also, it's an opportunity for everybody to ask questions, not just about cows and night time and what have you, but, you know, obviously if they've not got a great deal of experience with cattle in general, it's an opportunity to ask me all those difficult questions that I'll try and answer. A taste yeah. of the farm. Hmm. Brilliant. Yeah. I'd like to come along to that as well, just as a, you know, as a guest. Excellent. We'll see you then.
After the um, fill event, the farmer fill in the cowshed at night, we've got a few more wiggly days coming up. They are composting techniques on the 22nd of March and more. You can go to the website. And we've also got two special courses with wiggly friend Jenny Steele, who um, is coming along and teaching in the garden about all sorts of ways of attracting wildlife, courses that she used to do at Oxford. So they're on Saturday, April the 22nd and Thursday, June the 22nd. So if you'd like to join us, book, go to the website, wigglywiggles.co.uk. Oh, robins. Yes, you said to me, Rich, if there was going to be a bird of the month, it would be a robin. Yeah. And I said, but we don't do bird of the month. But this month yeah. is bird of the month and it's robin. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, somebody um, they said to me, and that's what lots of people have said to me, where do robins go in the summertime? Which is odd, isn't it? And people, you know, lots of sort of local, rural people have said, where do robins go in the summertime? Well, they don't go anywhere, do they? They're They're around, they're around, but they're just not as obvious. Because they're real sort of opportunistic, aren't they? They're kind of a relatively friendly bird, so they're really opportunistic. They'll hang around you a lot more if you're in the garden in the wintertime, looking for an opportunity to jump on a juicy worm or, you know, a leather jacket or something. What um, do you mean then they're not in your garden in summer as much because they're out no, and they're, about? They're, well, that's right. Well, they're in the garden as much, but of course they're not as dependent on us as for food. Right. So they don't need the same opportunities as they do in the winter. So there's plenty of food available to them. And Phil, you were telling us about a robin in your cow shed. Quite strange. The, the other day, and I mean this has happened a number of times, but we have the lights on in the cattle yards overnight. And when I go out and check the cattle last thing at night, sort of around midnight, Every so often, you'll find a robin in the yard singing. And on the face of it, you'd think, well, so what? But it actually is the strangest thing to hear a bird singing in the middle of the night. And just occasionally they do it. I don't particularly know why. Rich might know better than I, but it is a very eerie thing. Well, they yeah. like street lights, apparently, as well. Well, that's so because might... they're lit up, isn't it? There's an interesting study been done about robins, though, singing at night. Because, really? Yeah, and it's all, they reckon, there's a school of thought that's all down to predation because um, robins may well sing at night in certain places where it's lit up, but in other places, even though the same sort of population density of robins exists and there's the same kind of lighting, this is a, this is a comparison done between Ireland and England, robins, they don't sing. The reason is because there's lots and lots of owls around and the robins don't sing because obviously it gives the game away. So it's it's full of little nuggets. In this situation, obviously the robin that sings in Phil's barn feels secure enough to be able to do that at night. Yeah, and there's barn owls too. I was going to say, would that, because, I mean, the other night a tawny owl was roosting in the cattle yard, but presumably yeah. it would only go in there to roost, it wouldn't expect to hunt in there, so that... No, it probably wouldn't sort of expect to take a robin. It might expect to take a, a mouse, and barn owls, they obviously tend to feed predominantly on voles, and small mammals rather than birds. But, you know, tawnies will take small birds, certainly. Would they hunt indoors? That was what I was getting at. Was the tawny owl? Hmm. Oh, I'm sure they would, yeah. If they it's would. all Yeah, sort of absolutely. It. I mean, if it could go into your barn, which it obviously does, and if it expects to see small mammals running around on the floor at night, which it obviously would do because they do exist there, then, yeah, for sure it would hunt there. Would you chaps like to move this bird of the month to owls? Or <laughs> can we just get back onto robins? Yeah, OK, yeah. <laughs> So you've been doing some research into robins, haven't you? Oh, I have. And there's a, wasn't there a story about um, females flying over the channel? Yes, there was. Some female robins cross the channel to spend the winter as far south as southern Spain and Portugal. A dangerous option, even though the birds <coughs> then become extremely secretive. At the same time, there's an influx here of continental robins from Scandinavia and Russia, avoiding the severe winter weather there. Sensible birds, yeah. 
And then again, you see, that might well be another reason, probably is another reason, why we see more robins in the winter than we do in the summer. Um, so they're pretty territorial, aren't they? They're decidedly territorial, yeah. Amongst the songbirds, they're probably one of the most territorial. They, they will fight to the death. Sometimes when you look in the garden, you'll often see a bruised and battered robin, a few feathers missing, a bit of scarring around the face. Sometimes they'll, they'll actually kill the other robin by pecking it in the forehead. Just one joust to the forehead and, and that's oh. it. Poor old chap. That's the, that's the end of that. But it's nature's way, isn't it? Nature's red in tooth and claw. Hmm. I mean, I know in most gardens you have one pair of robins and a, you know, and a male will establish his territory in that garden. But in big estate gardens, big country gardens, then there may be several robin territories right across the garden. Yeah, it'll mm. be interesting to see. So if a listener does know how big a robin territory needs to be, then, you know, let us know. Wouldn't it depend on how much food there was and everything? But obviously the territory would need to be bigger if comparatively less food. So let's just go back a little bit. Winter's approaching. The robin is setting out his territory, is that right? Yeah. And that's when he's singing? They sing, well, the latter part of the winter. Um, obviously, singing takes a lot of energy, so you don't want to spend a lot of the winter singing because then you're going to waste energy. And, and what uh, does singing do besides sound? Well, singing does uh, several things. It attracts mates, but also marks out the robin's territory. Right. It sounds good as well, doesn't it? does sound good. <laughs> I can't tell you what it sounds like, but I'm sure it does sound good. So now we've moved on a little bit. Mm-hmm. Presumably he's got his territory yep. and he's about to set up his nest, is he? He's got his territory. He's got his mate. Right. Female robin's moved in. Female robin stops singing sometime around the middle of January, don't they? Right. But of course the male will carry on singing because he's still needing to mark out his territory, make sure that other male robins either stay clear or at least recognise that that's his patch. So that lovely robin that I think of, that little sweet creature, isn't as sweet as it perhaps looks. Oh, all animals, you know, they need to survive, don't they? They yeah. need to look after their own. We're exactly the same. We might not peck each other in the forehead, but, you know, we need to mark out our territories and look I after our own. I could today. <laughs> I forgot to ask you what they like to eat. They like all sorts of things, actually, robins. They will take seed and insects alike, so they're decidedly um, omnivorous. But they do like mealworms. I mean, at this time of year, they really feast on mealworms if they can get hold of them. But fat, they really like fat. Mm, Rice, yeah, they do like fat, mashed potato. <laughs> they like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard. And yeah. just remember, clunk, click, every trip. Yeah. Oh, and the competition this month, the Simon Barnes book, how to be a bad bird watcher is up for grabs if you can answer this question. What is the Latin name for Robin? I don't know. But if you do know, email heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk. And as I always say, if you're a new listener, welcome on board. But the key thing to do is subscribe. So if you haven't subscribed yet to our podcast, go to wigglywigglers.co.uk forward slash podcasts and you'll get all the information there. Well, we've got Farmer Phil in, and he's going to talk to us about American beef, because he's been on his travels. What did you think of it, Phil? I thought it was excellent. I ate a lot of American beef while I was in America, as you do, because they like beef there. And I was interested to find out what their feelings were about the meat that they eat, compared to what I think our feelings in this country are. And I think we found out that they were very different. They judge their meat purely on quality, taste, what's in front of them on the plate or in the butcher. Beyond that, they don't seem to worry. What do you mean? 
Well, uh, the idea in this country that traceability is becoming ever more important, and I think it probably is important, you know, myself, I think it's a good idea. But in America, whether you call it behind or whatever, they, they don't seem to worry. They're not fussed. If it's a good piece of meat, that's all that matters to them. Right. which intrigued me really and the meat that they served us over there was absolutely fantastic you know have they got the same legislation in, in terms of growth promoters and all that as us because we can't use anything like that no and they it- haven't there are several differences some of which have been actually rectified in, in this country but they are still allowed to use a number of growth promoters and various other drugs to facilitate beef production if you like But alongside that, historically, American and South American beef is fattened over a long period of time so that you'd have much older meat. It's more marbled, which means it's got more fat within the the actual meat. And consequently, I mean, some people say you can end up with it being more tough and you certainly need to hang it for long enough to make it tender. But I was very impressed with the meat that they served us and it, it did look different in that we went into one or two of the New York delis to see what they'd got to offer their customers and we were, to a man or woman, very impressed, weren't we? That well, we went into Balducci's, didn't we, which is mm. back in New York and you were on about the different cuts of beef. Mm. Obviously, how you cut your meat depends on what it, the texture of it, what it tastes like and so on. And they have a, a cut which is New York strip, they call it, and we would call it strip sirloin, which is a great cut of beef, but you don't see it very often. Mm. And you know, they, they, were, they seem to be offering what we would regard as the cheaper cuts, but they're very often the tasty ones, mostly because they've got fat in them, which is generally a good thing when it comes to cooking them. It keeps them moist, gives them taste. So how <coughs> long would it take you to fatten a beef beast here? Well, in the wake of BSE... In this country, until very recently, we've not been able to have any beef animals over 30 months old go for human consumption. So that for the last however many years, 10 years I suppose it is now, all our beef has had to be fattened to finishing point before the animal is 30 months old. That has actually just been lifted with BSE now no longer significant, which will allow us to fatten cattle less intensively, i.e. over a longer period off grass rather than keeping them in a yard and feeding them, for example, cereals or various other vegetables, um, potatoes, roots, that sort of thing, and silage, of course. So is it much better for the taste of the beef to be fattened on grass, then? It does vary a little bit with what animal you start with, but certainly if you're using traditional breeds or traditional crossbreeds, so, for example, your Aberdeen Angus crosses or your Hereford crosses, you might have a continental cross in there, so your Charolais, your Limousins, the traditionally beefy breeds, the ones that have come in for high productivity. But you have a crossbred animal and fatten it over a little bit longer time, you get more taste and the meat is more mature. Of course, that was just in Manhattan, just one part of New York. But I know we've got listeners all over America. We've got Podchef, who did a wonderful review of the Wiggly Wigglers podcast on his Gastrocast. Um, So I'm sure he'll have something to say on beef. Um, But if you're listening in any part of the US, email us and let us know what you think. It's time for Monty with his Wormcast. Hi, Monty. Nice to see you. Go for it. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on worms. Earthworms in the Nile Valley can deposit up to a 1,000 tonnes of castings per acre which helps to explain the rich soil in Egypt's farmland. 
Thanks, Monty. That was great. Okay, so it's time for our regular Wiggly podcast feature, which is Plant of the Week. And I think Alison is just coming in through the door now. Here she is. (laughs) Hi, Alison. You all right? Good. Nice to see you. So what are you going to be talking about this week then? I think it's something yellow, isn't it? Something yellow and something marigold-like? Yes, uh, marsh marigold this week, Rich. Um, It doesn't look much this time of year. Um, They tend to die down in the wintertime. And then you start to get in the spring these tiny little green shoots um, appearing, uh, which is notorious of uh, marsh marigold. I've got the Latin name, Al. Have you got it? Yes. Go on then. (laughs) Caltha palestris. And I've got some common names. King cups. Water blobs, bull's eyes, leopard's foot, mountain roots, verrucaria, horse blobs, and sponsor solace. But what's the one you used to call? Didn't you used to call this one Billy's Button? No, that's Water Raven! (laughs) (laughs) Water Raven! I just said to everybody in the office, She's going to say, Billy's Button. I'm not. Oh. Billy's Buttons are water ravens. They're oh, my Because I've never ever favorite. heard of that until you, used to say, until you said that last year. These are like <laughs> buttercups, aren't they, these? Marsh marigolds are lovely, aren't they? They're fantastic, really yellow, and you, you get the light at the time of year when they're really proliferating. You know, shiny, spring. aren't they? Really shiny. The flowers are, yeah. Mm. Like buttercups, they're larger. Yeah. Member of the buttercup family. Do they grow quickly? Very quickly, so if you were putting that, what's that? How big is that? Put a quarter of a litre pot or something, is yes. it? Yes. If you put that into the bank side of your pond now, how long before you could expect a sort of mat of, I don't know, 10 inches square or round even? Um, if it's done in the spring, four to six weeks really? of nice leaves and yeah. a couple of flowers. Yeah. Really so no, no time at all. They sort of flower between March and July, so they have quite a long span of flowering. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Shakespeare refers to this flower... Winking Mary buds begin to ope their golden eyes. And did you know that the leaves from this flower can be cooked and eaten like spinach? Yeah, they do. They do resemble spinach, actually. The, the texture of them. You get. Yeah. Uh, where are you getting your information from? We have there? to um, have some. <laughs> I am a mind of knowledge. Yeah, you are a mind of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, I have got my laptop on my lap. Yeah. And I'm Wi-Fi'd to networks around the world, <laughs> baby. <laughs> Fantastic. I think this is one of, the, one of my favourite waterside plants, you know. Whenever I've created a pond, I've always put in marsh marigolds. Yeah, we certainly try and put a couple in of every pond pack that goes out from Wigglers because we yeah. love it so much. Yeah, How big does it grow then? Because will it take over? You know, the occasional thing, like purple well, loose gets really is, keen, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's quite vigorous growing, so you may have to dig it up and divide it in the autumn. Uh, you can put it on and sell more plants. So that's right, yeah. <laughs> you go into production. Put it in your local newspaper and sell it yeah. on there. Yeah, why not? But yeah, it is one to watch, but it's not as vigorous as like the water mint. And the good thing about that is that round your pond, generally, you don't want acres of bare soil, do you? So if it spreads, all the yeah, better. it's nicer and wilder. Thank you, Al. Thank you. Don't forget the competition. One last time, Rich, what's the question? The question is, what's the Latin name of our Robin? And we will pull your name out of the hat right at the end of February to find out who's won. So good luck. Yep. Next week, we'll be having the report from New York and hopefully Richard will be successfully just about to complete his ground force changing rooms garden. So, be good. hope to have you listening in again next week and don't forget to subscribe. Bye from me at Lakemere. Bye. <laughs>